0: Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Leif Magnuson, CEO and co-founder of Tip House, a tip distribution management platform that's raised $8 million in funding. Leif, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me, Brad. Not a problem. Super excited for our conversation. Can we go ahead and just kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, born and raised in Seattle. I was a terrible high school student. Spent too much partying and not enough time, you know, hitting the books. I got serious about things after I graduated, went to community college, got my grades. I went to a, a local college here called Western Washington University, go Vikings. From there, I landed on a degree called manufacturing supply chain management, which kind of changed the course of my life, I guess. But it was a deep dive into, you know, lean manufacturing principles, supply chain, you know, the core and backbone of, of many industries. Help me understand, like, how do these things work? You look at a big company from the outside and it sounds, you know, it looks daunting. And then you start taking apart and there's all these different layers that help kind of bring it to that point. It's not usually all about product. A lot of the times it's, you know, the company successful because they were able to get up, you know, something manufactured cheaper than the competition or get a move from a year to there and all that kind of stuff. So from there, I started working in corporate for two years, hated it. Um, it was just incredibly boring and soul sucking. And I'm sure a lot of founders kind of feel the same way. But from there, I started a couple of marijuana companies that all failed, uh, but I learned... Quite a few very good lessons along the way, especially like how not to be in business. You know, working with with folks in that industry was a little rough. And then I, you know, eventually started consulting for restaurants, and that's kind of how I came across this idea in the first place.
0: And what were you consulting restaurants on? What
1: were they hiring you to do initially? Yeah, so they, my first restaurant consulting job was from a restaurant group out of, out of the Seattle area called Friendly's Pizza, Great Pizza. If you get a chance to check that out, they called me into specifically improve the efficiency of their pizza making abilities, right? They had this new concept on the water, was incredibly busy during the summer months. They couldn't keep up with that production. So I tapped my you know lean manufacturing degree education, if you will, and you know reduced the lead times on pizzas by 30%. Did a bunch of things in the kitchen that just made the process more efficient. So from there after I kind of crushed that I basically upsold them. I was like, Hey man, you know your technology stack is super old. What do you think about me kind of engaging with you guys for another year, maybe two, upgrading that tech stack over time? They bought it and and we, we successfully deployed a new point of sale and all the derivative technologies from that, including tip calculation, which I didn't even know existed at the time, but payroll, all those different elements. Well, luckily we did that too, because COVID hit not too long afterwards and they would have been tank if they didn't have the ability to sell online and, and, and manage all that stuff.
0: And then when did you stumble on this idea of tip management and how did you decide to make that the problem that you were going to solve? Yeah.
1: So I really didn't. I fought the idea for a long time, but one of the things that I, I didn't know it existed. In the first place, we upgraded the point of sale and then, you know, the restaurant leadership was like, well, we need to figure out what to do with tips. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean do with tips? Well, we distribute them in, in complex ways to make sure that, you know, if a server makes a hundred dollars on average, we're giving up, you know, 25% of that to supporting staff and it has to be done in a fair way. And they had a very specific way that they wanted to go about that. So I started vetting the different softwares out in the market and there were very few. Landed on one, which I guess you could say was the leader at the point onboarded. It was a terrible experience. And it lacked a lot of things that I and the restaurant thought would just be logical things to have in a software that's calling themselves a tip calculation management platform, right? So they kind of begged me over the last four months to build the thing because they knew I was well-connected with developers in Seattle and all that. At least had a little bit of a tech background. So that's kind of how things came together.
0: And then what happened after that? What were those first like Let's talk about maybe like first five, 10 paying customers. How'd you land those deals? Yeah, so I got pretty fortunate. We uh
1: since I was consulting in this area and in, in the in the restaurant group I was consulting for was fairly well connected. You I know, mean, there's a little bit of word of mouth, but we built the MVP over six months. I deployed it to Ferelli's. That was kind of the deal. They would pay me for a few months to kind of develop this for them. They give it for for free forever, right? So we deployed it there. And then I pulled in, our first paying customer was a 30-unit restaurant chain, a local restaurant chain here in the Northwest, which is a massive first customer, as you can imagine. We brought them in. And then about four or five months later, we brought in another 23-unit restaurant chain. So we had some some big boys right away. We brought on that first customer. I was like, okay, well, the product is good, but we needed to do X, Y, and Z. And and then we started to really realize, okay, well, the MPP was pretty easy to put out, but there's all these other things that are required. And every new customer that came on, with had new requirements. We really had to figure out how to implement all these product enhancements in a way that didn't deviate from like what we thought the market was going to need, you know, in two, three, four years time, which was difficult, but we managed.
0: What do you think that first restaurant chain with 30 units, what did they see in you that They said, yep, let's give you a shot. Let's give you and your co-founder a shot. You know, what did they see? It
1: came down to the product at the end of the day. We were able to match the price that they were currently paying to that competitor and beat their product. We were able to beat their functionality in six months, right? So that kind of gives you an idea of how underdeveloped the space was when we first entered it. For some reason, it was just overlooked. And I was sitting there, you know, before really putting a lot of time and effort into this industry in general. I was looking around. I noticed there were, you know, major... Scheduling software companies, right? So restaurants need to schedule their staff, right? Well, most businesses do, but restaurants, it's a little bit more difficult. So there's like four major ones that are all venture backed back and all that kind of stuff. And I started looking at like the tip space, it seemed kind of small to me at first, but then I started realizing okay, there's $90 billion of tips being generated in America. All those tips are being managed in some way, right? They don't all go to the end, you know, the server or bartender or the recipient, let's say. So why isn't there more infrastructure around this problem? And it just you know, at that point, I was like, well, it makes sense to just kind of develop a company around this. It might seem kind of small and insignificant right now. But as time went on, it became, you know, we had this massive wave of customers kind of leaving their spreadsheets and, and things like that, the manual calculation stuff, and moving over to a system like ours.
0: Why do you think it was so underdeveloped? Because when you say that out loud, it's like, wow, $90 billion market there, or $90 billion in tips that's being moved. Like, seems like a no. lot of runners would have looked at that, okay, it's an obvious market to go after. How was it missed like that?
1: This is the conversation I have with VCs every time I go out to raise, and it's the same conversation, but they're always asking about, you know, other entrants coming in, you know, what's your mode, all that kind of stuff. And realistically, it's a far more complex problem than you would initially realize. It took us, no joke, about three years of constant development to get to the point where we could successfully walk into just about any restaurant in the nation and, and deploy our software in a way that made sense to them right in their operations, their pre-existing operations before that if we went to a customer and we said hey look everything is perfect and then the customer said hey look well i need this one thing and we didn't have it that would kill the deal or it would postpone the deal they just wouldn't move forward so it's a very hard product to get to the point where you can sell it successfully so there's a lot of investment in time and it it's not one of those things you can kind of put 10 devs on and, and expect them to come up with something good in a year even it's a, a highly iterative process so that's one thing. The other large mode around the problem itself is the simple fact that you need to integrate with every existing point of sale and, and scheduling software, you know, which is pretty intensive. It's one of the harder parts about starting a company in this space and many other companies, you know, software companies, right, that rely on, on APIs in general. This one's just so segmented, you know, compared to other other spaces that you have to have. I mean, there's 20 plus point of sales that are they're all fairly popular in the United States and you have to integrate with each one.
0: And if you look at the tip management space, is there like a giant? Was there like an old legacy company that was just dominating this market, or what is like? There was,
1: yeah, that was a Gratuity Solutions at the time, which is the one that I onboarded and and disliked enough to create a competing solution against. But that was really it. There weren't a lot of other companies out there doing it well. And when I say doing it well, like living and breathing the problem, right? There's there were companies out there that had a product and market, but it was like you know the ownership was not living and breathing this every day. And so there you can tell that it's just, you know, the products were definitely suffering because of that.
0: On your website, I saw a really fun testimonial. It says, I can't effing believe we ever operated without tip house. When she writes that, is she referring to like using other solutions or was the status quo for them and many other customers just doing this manually and doing it in spreadsheets?
1: Most customers, I'd say then still to this day, most customers are still in spreadsheet land. It's a highly manual process as you can imagine. So there's usually for a smaller organization, let's say just a single unit restaurant, they'll, you know, they'll have a manager that at the end of the night or the GM at the, end of the night or early morning, will have to like, look at all the tips and, and figure out who gets what or payroll day. They have to reconcile all this stuff and, and go through all these spreadsheets, which they hate. It's like doing taxes every day or, or every pay period. And so by deploying the product, It's fairly easy to get like significant wins early on just by, Hey, look, this took me one minute instead of, you know, 30 minutes every
0: day kind of thing. Yeah. And that's a good point too. So every day is. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. People hate it. I used to have to do it for for when I was consulting for the Corellis group and it was just mind melting stuff. Yeah.
0: I have to imagine too, it's pretty high stakes, right? If you're doing that manually wrong, there's some high stakes there, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and you'd run, we'd run into that. We're like, okay, we, we spent a hundred dollars extra home with this guy. And and it turns out you shouldn't have gone to somebody else. And then what, you know, you're, you can't take that money back. So you have to pay out and you know, it gets pretty expensive. If you start making mistakes. And it's very easy to make mistakes.
0: Do restaurant operators, do they get it right away? Like when you pitch this idea are they like, yes, like, thank God someone's coming in with that, a real solution to this. Or do they view it as like a problem that they can live with? And you have to really agitate that pain and, and make them a bit more like problem aware. Most of our customers, we have
1: moved up market, you know, 5, 10 plus restaurant chains that are usually higher revenue type operations, like steakhouses and things like that. Like they're doing above seven dollars or $8,000 a day in sales. They get it they're a well-willed machine. They've got a, you know, they've got highly skilled operator. They might've raised some PE funding to, to expand their footprint over the next couple of years. So they're, they're dialed in and they understand any, you know, software that, that saves even five minutes a day of this person's time. And it costs X amount of dollars. You can do the math in your head and make it make sense. Right. When you start talking about some of these mom and pop type shops, they're a little bit less inclined to like create that reasoning. And so, I've talked to some folks and I'm like, well, I have no problem just doing this in spreadsheets and i it doesn't happen very often, but that does happen with, with, some of these smaller operators for sure.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I guess in that case, that's probably not a target customer that you want anyways, if there's someone who's willing to- No,
1: exactly. It. Yeah, exactly. Let, let somebody else take that one.
0: <laughs> Is the master plan here to keep going up market? Like, do you want this to be really an enterprise sale at some point, or do you want to really kind of be spread out and serve both mid-market and enterprise?
1: So that's a difficult question to to answer just because we sell into enterprise right now. Like we've got some enterprise customers that we just recently acquired this year. There were some tweaks and changes that needed to happen in the product in order to make that happen. There were some you know permissions and roles type stuff that we needed to figure out. But if this makes sense, if if I sell to a a 50-unit restaurant chain, which is technically S&B, and a 300-unit restaurant chain, it's fairly similar. And a 300-unit restaurant chain, that's an enterprise customer, right? And so yeah. there's not a lot of differentiation as far as like the selling component is, is much different but the actual product and the service and the customer support and all that kind of stuff is very very similar and so we're attacking both sides of it and so i'm not i'm not we're not creating a differentiation between enterprise and, and the lower end of the market
0: is the buyer different though if you're going mid-market or smb is in, it it um, is
1: yeah. And that's what I was mentioning that you have to tailor your sales process for the enterprise side of things. You know, it's more presentation type stuff. You're really, you're less on the technical side of things and you're more on like, Hey, how can I reduce the employee turnover? And what are the metrics behind that? And what are the use cases and what are your other customers and presenting that in a way that's like easy enough for them to digest in a quick enough manner. And then being able to propel that conversation because enterprise customers is, is, is sometimes it's 12 months before, you know, from that first point of contact to the sale. And so it's that: like, how do you get that first person you talk to to kind of disseminate that, that information to other folks at the leadership table and all that kind of stuff. That's the hard part about the enterprise sales side.
0: In enterprise sales, who's that persona that you're really speaking to? Is it finance? Is it HR? Is it operations? I could see a case for probably all three of those. Who's like that main buyer that you're trying to engage and target? Oh, I mean, yeah, it's all of them. We'll usually have
1: one out of each one of those. They'll either be operations, HR, or CFO, seldom the CEO. But they've identified a problem that needs fixing, and one of them will reach out to us to kind of get the ball rolling from that first point of contact. So there's usually one person that's pretty key on the idea of using something like this. But seldom like do we have to convince them of the value. They usually have some value in their head that we need to kind of then understand ourselves and then, and then double down on usually, and then get them to understand how, what are the other multitude of different things that we can do for their organization? Like I mentioned, reducing employee turnover or increasing employee satisfaction, which doesn't decrease turnover, but reducing the risk of getting sued, right? There's class action lawsuits all the time around the mismanagement of tips. And so those are the kinds of things that we try to, you know, but those are more well-received by folks like a CFO, right? If you're talking to a three-unit restaurant chain, that those are things that they're more worried about functionality. How
0: does this help me right now? How much time does it save me, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. Are there any numbers you can share that can help us understand the scale that you're operating at today?
1: Yeah, we're just north of 3 mil in ARR. We are growing fairly quickly. We did 3X this year, did 3X the year before. So we're kind of maintaining a fairly steady pace. You know, this, this industry is not like, you know, it's not like selling AI where it can blow up 15X in one year kind of thing, right? Like you're, you're, the flip side to that is that our, our product is far stickier. So I'm super happy with our ability to kind of continue this rate of growth, um, especially with the amount of funding that we've brought on so far just fairly limited when you look at the competition in the space. What is having a dramatic impact on our revenue in general is our ability to move money. So we do the calculations, but then you know we had restaurants and all of our customers reaching out to us. Hey, you do the calculations really, really well. We love you. But can you also move the money to my employees? Because we don't have any cash anymore since COVID. So we could have brought that to market over this past year. And that's had a significant impact on our revenue.
0: What do you attribute to your success and your growth? I'm sure there's a lot of different things that you've gotten right over the last year or last couple of years, but if we had to pick one big thing, what do you think that
1: thing would be? Mm, that's a difficult one. I think this is a winner for any company. It's like, get rid of all the egos in my room and stay very, very close to the problem. If you want to get more grain or with more direct with like something that we did well, that, that I could attribute our success to, I would say, all right, so we service restaurants, right? That's hospitality. Hospitality has a very high degree of, you know, they pride themselves on, on serving, you know, their customers. Right. And due to that, there's a very high level of expectations around how they're serviced from their technology providers. So early on, we decided to really spend a lot of time and money on the support of our customers in a way that they felt like, Hey, if I want to get on the phone with a very knowledgeable rep at Tip Palace, I can do that within five or 10 minutes and talk to somebody on the phone, right? So we kind of, that's kind of been the backbone of a lot of the reasons why you get so many referrals, like people talking about us in a, in a nice way that have, you know, propelled us into partnerships with point of sale systems and all that kind of stuff.
0: And what about your market category? I know we were chatting about this a little bit in the pre-interview of, you know, what is Tip House, is it a tip distribution management platform? Is it a tip gratuity management platform? Like what is it, or like, what do you want to be is maybe a better way to ask that question.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that is a good question though. What I see our company evolving into over the next few years is we're dealing with the largest sales force in America, right? Servers, bartenders, these folks that are working in restaurants trying to get people to you know effectively buy more food and have a good time around it and all that kind of stuff. So I look at us as like this incentivization it engine for those salespeople, right? We're, we're the ones documenting how much commission they're getting, i.e. tips. And so because of that, and all the data that we have, we can do things to poke and prod and nudge these salespeople to do certain activities that generate higher revenue per hour for the restaurant, greater tips for themselves and definitely more money for us. Cause we're the ones making money off of the, di- the distribution of these funds.
0: What would you call that? Like a, a dream kiss? I haven't come up with a name for it (laughs) yet. Well, what What are you saying? The marketing person can work on that day one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Would it be like an incentive management? Is that like an easy way to summarize it or big restaurant?
1: Yes. Yeah. I'm hoping for something with a little more pop than that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Those sound like Gardner (laughs) Fern. Yeah. Well, if you think of anything, you shoot me an email, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course. Now, I know you touched on that a little bit at the start of the interview, but I just want to ask a bit more about it or dive a bit deeper. So COVID, obviously, some industries were really affected. Restaurant industry was affected in a very major way. What was COVID like for you? Can you take us through kind of that journey and what you learned from that and what you did to survive it? Yeah, that was, it was super rough for us. You know, as you could
1: imagine, if there's nobody in the restaurant, there's no need for tip calculation. I, and plus none of the restaurants had made money for software anyways, unless it like was helping them sell to people, you know, like QR codes and all that kind of stuff. Those, those companies did really well. So we, we basically, we went into COVID with $5,000 a month of revenue. I think it was, and we exited after 12 months with the single amount of revenue. This is like our first actual year of selling. Like we incorporated in August 2019, and then COVID hit in March 2020. So it hit really soon after we, we just started getting our wheels underneath us. So I remember it was February. I we we sat the leadership team. There's four of us at the time, maybe five of us. We sat down and we kind of just came to a term. We're like, hey, look, if, if the market, if COVID doesn't release this graph on our throats within the next month. We're gonna throw in the towel, no joke. Like one month later, we started seeing an increase in sales. So it was it was like that close that we were we were gonna give up. But I mean, you know, COVID could lasted like twelve months after that. You don't know. We we definitely couldn't survive if none of us were getting any salaries and things like that. So
0: just a rough time. Yeah, yeah, sounds like, and I can imagine that. I think anyone in the restaurant tech space or hospitality tech space, they were hit especially hard. But like you said, yeah. you, know, you don't have the uh, the wild swings like AI companies, but Also, it sounds like it's a much more stable industry. Apart from things like COVID, it's overall probably much more stable.
1: Very stable. Yeah. And I think COVID was a weird anomaly, but, um, you know, people have to eat at the end of the day, you know, even during COVID, I think only 20% of restaurants went under, so the market's large enough that even during a downturn in the economy, as you're selling uh, stuff for to restaurants, it doesn't affect you too much. Yeah. That makes sense. You've raised
0: $8 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising
1: throughout the journey? Oh, fundraising is fun. You know, some people like it. I despise it. I think the biggest takeaway, I'm I'm slightly bitter about it just because it just, it's very hard to convince folks of what you're doing. And a a lot of the times it's completely outside of your control, right? Due to macro elements, you know, you'll hear VC say certain things to you. And then, you know, you'll kind of have to take a step back and be like, well, Is that really the reason why you passed or is it the macro environment? I just went through a a fundraise three months ago or two months ago, let's say, and I was getting a lot of passes. We've got great metrics. Everything is really great on paper. We look like an amazing company to invest in, but they come back to me with these objections. And in the, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I know you're just hoarding cash because you know, you're not going to get your LPs to, to give you more cash. Right. And that's all that these guys are doing right now. So it's, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, take it with a grain of salt, like These guys don't know very much about business in general. They pretend like they do and they, they, you know, all this kind of stuff, but focus on your product and, you know, just really, you know, focus on your numbers and just, you know, do your thing and it'll work out usually.
0: (laughs) This is probably one of the first times I've ever had someone answer that in a real way. Normally I get like, well, it's all about relationships, right? You got to really focus on building it Advance. I appreciate you being candid and honest about it and your experience with fundraising.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're just so annoying. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I was able to raise funds. I will say in, in case my VCs are a little thing, I was able to raise funds beginning of last year and I raised more funds from that same VC just about a month ago after I went to market and everything like that. And it worked out really well from our valuation perspective, everything worked out for a capital perspective, all that kind of stuff, but you know, VCs there's some really good ones out there and they're not going to have, they all tell you they're going to have a lot of value in other ways besides money, but that's, you know, it's not going to really move the needle for your business that much. So yeah, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying is like, there's some, there's some really good ones out there too.
0: Let's imagine I, I come to you and I say, Hey, I want to start a technology company. I want to sell it into restaurants based on everything that you've learned so far. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give me? I don't know if I would.
1: Yeah, I would say don't do it basically. Um, there are a ton of companies that are starting up in the space right now, um, over the past couple of years since, since COVID, I think, but it's like, it's in the thousands, right? And they're all trying to sell and extract money from a restaurant. Restaurants have very low margins, as you're probably aware. It's not uncommon to find a large format restaurant making eight to 10% profit margins. Right. And so when you are trying to sell into that especially on the SaaS side of things you know you this restaurant's going to have a tech stack that they're paying x amount of dollars for already and then you're asking to add on to that unless you've got something very very compelling it can be very hard to extract enough value from that 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 customer in order to prop up a you know a venture scale business um it's just very hard to do i'm not saying that they won't engage with you but you're not going to charge the prices that you want um so you have to get very creative about extracting or creating revenues for yourself that don't mean that you're charging the restaurant or tying yourself into revenue in some way i guess
0: do you ever worry about like this whole like tipping economy and i keep reading articles about how at least in the u.s like people are done with tipping they're burned out with tipping they're being asked everywhere do you ever worry that a tipping is going to go away at some point and we'll become more like sweden or europe or yeah you know, somewhere else where tipping is not so common People always ask me that
1: because I'm you know, obviously I have a tipping company, but I don't, you know, then free economics is a really good podcast on on the tipping psychology around tipping and all that kind of stuff. And what really like, what they were able to deduce and, and I tend to agree with is that people like to tip. They they complain about it, all that kind of stuff, but people like that interaction and that power I don't know what it is, but they like that. You also have the other side is that servers really like getting tipped. Bartenders really like getting tipped. If you took away the ability for them to get tipped, there's no way that the restaurant would be able to support the wages that they expect, you know, most of the restaurants we work with, the, employee, the, the servers are making 30 to $40 an hour in tips. Like how the heck are you gonna be able to pay your servers that much money? Right. It doesn't make any sense. And so I don't see how we could ever get to that point, you know, like what did they, they change the laws all of a sudden, like, how, how does that work? Realistically, it, it would just be a mess we, I'm seeing restaurants try to Embark on things like uh, Danny Myers over in New York, kind of doing a higher income for his folks. He he went away from that eventually, just because it it didn't really work. But every time we see an in, increase in minimum wage in certain states, I hear all these these restaurant owners kind of say, "Oh, we're going to do away with. It. We're going to get an income. We're going to do service charge, all that kind of stuff." And and then you know a few years later, they get used to the the new increase in minimum wage, and they go back to what they were doing before. So I don't think it's ever going to change. I know that's kind of long winded, but
0: be like long winded answers. Do you see this market also expanding outside of restaurants? Like the example I would have is I stole a glass of wine the other night on my white couch. I had to have a carpet cleaner come, swipe my car with the iPad and then he spins it around and like asks me for a tip. And like he's standing in my living room I had to give him a tip. Like, could you sell into all That's of the cool. other types of people who are now doing tips that previously weren't taking tips? Yeah, there's definitely
1: an issue with that kind of stuff. Fundamentally what happened there and the reason why I everybody's I for tips is that All the technology providers, all the point of sales, right. They started enabling that. And once you allow your customers, you know, these service providers to enable it, they're going to enable it. Like the the business thinks that in their mind, they're like, okay, well, if I turn this on, I can generate, my employees can generate an additional $3 an hour on average for like a counter service type place. Right. Why wouldn't you do that as the owner of the business? It only makes sense. And it makes sense to the employees as well. And so then we, as the customers are left with the, I don't know, the pressure of kind of like falling into societal norms in some way or figuring out what those norms are. But it's, I think just because it's, it's so new that we haven't kind of figured out what is the norm. Like if I go, if I go to McDonald's, I don't leave a tip, right? Right. They don't ask for a tip either, but you know, Starbucks started asking for tips too. I'm paid eight dollars for coffee. Do I really need a tip on top of that? You never asked me before, you know, so kind of figuring out how we want to do this moving forward. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I, I definitely don't like it. One of the things that we're seeing right now is like, I think this is a more positive note for, for tip acceptance is like uh, hotels where you you know your room service or house cleaning folks do a really good job or you want to leave a tip after after your week in Cabo or something like that, scan a QR code and they get that, receive that money, which is kind of a nice thing. I think a lot of people would like to do that, that kind of thing.
0: That's an example of like a situation where you want to tip, but it's very hard as opposed to like- yeah. the- want are the ones that you didn't describe where it's like you don't want a tip in that situation you've never had a tip no you're being asked here, you and you have to be the asshole to like check zero percent and like you shouldn't have to feel bad (laughs) yeah you just scare him right in the eye (laughs) I love it all right final question for you before we wrap up Garrett let's zoom out three to five years into the future what's the big picture of vision that you're building (laughs)
1: I see ourselves being like the incentivization issue. So I I plan on gamifying that experience to a point where I can kind of guide employees to be exceptional at what they do. They get very little guidance on, on from, from management in a restaurant situation in, in most, you know, 90% of cases. So I think that one of the values that we can add to those Kios workers is kind of pushing and prodding them to do the things that that will make them more successful and better servers and make more money and all that kind of stuff. And then as a tangent to that over the next two years, we're gonna be working on pushing certain products, right? Where we're incentivizing folks to sell certain things. When somebody asks for a, a vodka soda, you know, you might say, would you like a Tito's with that? And then we might have a relationship with Tito's to help kind of propagate that. And then they might win an award for something or get extra incentives on the back end for, for activities like that. So I, I feel like there, there's a lot of things that we can do just simply by pushing people to ask certain questions at certain times and things like that. And since we were intimately involved with, the, with these people's lives, I, I, I think there's a good chance we'll be able to pull it off.
0: Amazing. Love the vision. And we'll have to bring you back on for part two in a couple of years to chat about that more. We are up on time. We're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if there's any founders listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Follow me on
1: LinkedIn or yeah, connect with me. Send me a message. Leif Magnuson.
0: Nice and easy. All right, man. I appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Brett. Have a good one, man. Yeah, you too.